was, I feel welcome, guys. That was great. Um, <laughs> okay, so I'm going to do something a little different today and give a little context before I read the passage. So um, if we could, this may, may or may not work, but uh, could we have a, a, the image I provided up on the screen? There we go. This is Baal, the god that... Um, the Canaanites worshipped and that Jezebel worships in this passage, the, the God whose prophets Elijah kills right before this passage. A couple things to notice about Baal. Um, he's, he's got a war club raised up high. He's a, he's a warrior god. He's holding on to something, and if you're wondering, is that a spear? Is that a tree? Is that a lightning bolt? Uh, the answer is yes. It is all of those things. <laughs> because he is the god of not just war, but also of fertility. So he kills your enemies, and you're dependent on him for your food and your rain, and he sends the lightning. That's going to be significant, obviously. So the reason why, um, you can see the reason why Elijah uh, picks uh, rain as his symbol of Baal's uh, impotence, basically, because if, if there's no rain and Elijah declared that this is what Yahweh did, um, obviously Baal's not in control of the rain. Um, and you can see him standing on his, his uh, places of power, the sea and the mountains, and the, the thir- that weird kind of third hand that's coming out there, it's probably resting on the head of the king of Ugarit, that's where this Stella comes from, um, to emphasize the connection between the gods and the kingship, though obviously the sizes are very different, emphasizing, you know, who's more powerful here. So, uh, there you go. That's Baal, just a little introduction. Um, what we see right before this passage is in, um, is you have, okay, you have Israel in the judges period. They don't have any kings. Someone rises up every few years to defeat their enemies, and then, you know, the cycle kind of repeats itself. Then you have the three kings of the united monarchy, uh, Saul, David, Solomon. And then Solomon's son uh, makes some big mistakes, and his name's Rehoboam, and the kingdom splits. So then you have the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom, which is also called Israel. And what you see right before this, in the passages right before this, is an incredible amount of political instability. So over the course of about 30 years, you get about four different dynasties, and when one dynasty takes over after the other, they kill everybody in the previous dynasty's family. So lots of bloodshed, lots of instability. In fact, one of the kings, it says, only reigns for about seven days. So you can imagine that's a difficult, that's a difficult place to live. You know, um, depending on how involved you are in politics, it's hard for us to kind of imagine how how disruptive that would be for everyday life when your king is different, you know, maybe seven days from now. So, um, Elijah. Elijah shows up at the end of this narrative. Now, what's funny is, if you think about the prophets, they all get some kind of call narrative. Moses sees God in the burning bush. Uh, Samuel hears God when he's asleep in the temple. Isaiah has a, has a vast vision of God in the temple. Um, Jeremiah, we, we hear God's actual words to him. Elijah does not get a call narrative. In fact, it doesn't even say when he shows up in the text, uh, the word of God came to Elijah and said, tell Ahab there will be no rain. Elijah just shows up and says, hey, guess what? 
as God lives, it will not rain for three years. We don't even know if God told him to say that. Um, and it, it's funny because what happens after that, it almost feels like God, God goes along with it, but it almost feels like triage in a way. Like, okay, uh, all right, go to this wadi, Elijah, and I'll make sure you get fed. Oh, the wadi dried up, right, because it's not raining. Okay, well, uh, go stay with this widow. Um, and it's, I mean, with that in mind, it's kind of, it's kind of ironic that Elijah, and I think there's, I think it's pointed that God tells him to go to the widow because it's, it's ironic that he gets mad at God for, for letting her child die because it's like, Elijah, you're, you were the one that came up with the idea of no rain. That's why she's struggling. But anyway, um, God tells him right before this, go back to Ahab, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain. That's all God says. What Elijah takes from that is, okay, it's time for an epic showdown, which is what happens. Um, Elijah, in modern parlance, um, might be what we call extra. Like, that's just kind of, that's kind of his, his MO. Um, so he's like, okay, Ahab, get all the prophets of Baal and get all the prophets of Asherah and send them up to this mountain. We're each going to have a bull. We're each going to call on our God, and whoever's God actually lights the bull on fire, that's the one that's a real God. So, of course, the prophets of Baal are, you know, go up there, they're, they're wailing, they're crying out, Elijah's making fun of them, like, oh, maybe he's in the bathroom, he literally says that. Um, like, oh no, maybe he's asleep, and of course nothing happens, and, and to the point that they start physically harming themselves. They start cutting themselves, and still nothing happens. Baal is completely absent. So then, Elijah pours a ton of water on his own sacrifice, which, again, it's the middle of a drought. I don't know where he got that from. It's, it's very, very extra. Um, but then God lights the altar with fire from heaven, probably a lightning bolt. Um, again, symbol of Baal, but, it's, but it is Yahweh who's lighting the fire. And we get this huge public um, like vindication that God is real, that Elijah is his prophet, and, and all the people say, yes, Yahweh is our God. So, yay, it's great. And then Elijah says, now let's round up all the prophets, take them down to Awadi again, and he kills all of them, like murders them all. Like there's like 400, there's like more than 400 of them, and he kills them all. So with that introduction, <laughs> let's read what happens next. I've got to find my text here. Okay. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some baked bread over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. 
So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came, and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of, uh, of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all those who have not bowed to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. So, in his big showdown, I think at best, Elijah is angry at the atrocities perhaps being committed in the name of religion. We do know that child sacrifice happened. I don't know if that's going on at this time. We're not really sure. But, but more than that, a betrayal of a God who made a covenant with them. Because uh, gods don't do that. You know, the, the point of invoking a God in a covenant is, okay, if you break your covenant, then this, this God is going to you know, do something bad to you. But what are you going to do if the God breaks their end of the covenant? Nothing. So, um, so it's pretty significant that, that God makes a covenant with Israel, and then they just you know, abandon it. Um, and let's be honest, there is something deeply satisfying about the prophets of Baal story, maybe until the murder part, I don't know. Um, but God shows up and vindicates Elijah very publicly and very dramatically. It's like, wow. That's, I think we've all had moments where we wanted God to do that. Like, just show up, just show everyone I'm right. <laughs> and God does that. And then nothing changes. Uh, Jezebel threatens Elijah, and he runs away for his life. And then what does God do? God feeds him and nurtures him and gives him rest and provides for his physical needs And he does all that even before talking to Elijah. And it's been commented before that God is acting acting very feminine in this passage. God is acting like a mother. In a way, God's being an antidote to Baal. You can see in the the picture that we showed of the way that the people of Ugarit um, depict their deity. He's sort of, I mean, you could say he's sort of the epitome of toxic masculinity, but... That's problematic because no one thought those things were, were toxic at the time. That was just that wasn't even a subtext. It was like, yes, this is this is who the gods are. Um, 
And basically what Elijah has just done in this contest is treat Yahweh as though he's exactly like Baal. That if you, if, you, know, you kill our prophets, you kill our kings, we can kill yours too. And actually we can do it better because our God's real. And Elijah's actually mad at God after he does all this. You know, he, he says, God's like, why are you here? And basically he says, I did all this for you, and this is how you protect me? You might as well just kill me. Like, I'm the only one left who's, who's worshiping you. Why are you here, Elijah? Because I was zealous for you, and, and nothing has changed. Well, of course nothing has changed, because Elijah is doing the same thing that his enemies are doing. He's, he's engaging with the, the enemy in the way that they engage with him on their terms. Is God actually threatened by the prophets of Baal? No. Why would she be? God doesn't need you to defend her. God doesn't need Elijah to defend her because you're never a threat to her. God created the universe. She rules the world. She does as she pleases. It also, it just happens that she pleases to be deeply good and loving. Um, the opposite of Baal. Baal has nothing to say to her because they're not having the same conversation. And if you're a little shocked at me saying she here, I decided to do that because for one thing, God is acting like a mother. God is, God is doing traditionally feminine things in this passage. And of course, as humans, we are both made in God's image. We're both divine in that way. The Bible, of course, doesn't use she for God, but there are plenty of feminine images. And Toxic masculinity is toxic because it denies half of our half of men's humanity. It it denies their compassion, their gentleness, their nurturing side, just as it denies women power and leadership and courage. And if you think about all of those together, all of those are who God is, and all of those are the best parts of us. And to to isolate them into one gender or the other brings out the worst in us. And I think that. If hearing God referred to as she makes you uncomfortable, it's, it probably would have made the writers of the Bible uncomfortable, too. But they lived in a world full of balls. It's, they lived in a world full of deities who, who were ready to smite you, and that's what power meant. And that is, that is a problem. Um, it's worth thinking about why, that make, why it makes us uncomfortable to see our God that way. But, but more than that, I think it's a problem to show to call a show of force and intimidation and power, um, it, to call that power what Elijah does is to misunderstand who our God is because her greatest power is shown through love and mercy and compassion. Baal wants to have a fist fight with everyone he meets, and Elijah engages with that as if that's what God wants to do too, as if God is threatened by that. One of my favorite uh, Jewish theologians, who I like to quote all the time, as you well know. Um, <laughs> Abraham Joshua Heschel writes a book on the prophets. And speaking of God's relationship to humanity and how, how it's unique in the Hebrew prophets, he talks about how God is, is invested in the destiny of humans, that humans aren't something God uses, but something, but people that God cares about, even to the point that he lets it hurt him. Um, and he says, speaking of how God thinks of us, of what paltry worth is human might, but human compassion is divinely precious. What sums up the law and the prophets? Love God. Love your neighbor. And loving God is loving your neighbor. 
That's what I think the culture wars miss. We're not called to love our neighbor's politics, but we're not called to reduce them to their politics either. We're not called to love their politics or their lawn signs or their Facebook posts, but we are called to love them. And you love them by doing what God does for Elijah here, by caring for their needs. You speak to them not with fire or an earthquake, but with a still small voice. And what that voice says is, it's not over. There's hope. I love you. There's still, there's still 7,000 people who are with you, Elijah. You don't know them. You didn't pay attention. <laughs> you didn't get to know them. But they're there. They're still with you. Elijah treats the prophets of Baal as though they are an idea and a dangerous idea. But God treats Elijah like he's a human who is worth caring for. So I think one of the things I wrestled with the most as I was preparing this sermon and wrestling through this passage was, why does God let Elijah do this? And why does he go along with it? Like, why does God allow this to happen? Why does God allow Elijah to do this big showdown? And then, I mean, God doesn't command him to kill all the prophets, but he does it. And I think that's, again, thinking in terms of someone who might be threatened, someone who might be threatened by our power or who might not be able to let us make our own choices. But God's not threatened. And that is, in a sense, the, the essence of where religion goes wrong, is that power and control. It's so hard not to project our own need for control onto God. And I think, I'm not a parent, but I know that's got to be especially hard uh, you want to protect your children from doing things that will hurt them. You want to protect them from doing things that will hurt other people. But sometimes they are going to touch the hot stove, and sometimes that's the best way to learn not to do that. I think there's something scary about God giving us control, about God giving his spirit to Elijah, and then letting Elijah do what he wants with it, do what he thinks that God wants with it. I feel that in a way every time I preach because um, I'm a little terrified. Like, I, I'm always terrified I'm going to say something that's wrong or horrible or that really hurts someone and that I'll look back on it and I'll feel horribly guilty or I'll feel embarrassed about it or I'll just think, gosh, why did I do that? And I'm happy to announce that my failures don't extend to killing people, so I'm, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not quite in Elijah's territory there, but still, it's, religion is very powerful and there's a lot of power standing up here and talking to you guys, and that's scary. I think for me, what's, what I'm deeply grateful for is that we don't, we don't live in a world or a church where God's spirit is with one person. It's with the Holy Spirit. It's with all of you. Um, I get to stand up here and be a prophet of sorts, but all of you are prophets too. All of you have direct access to God. All of you hear from God, and all of you can and do speak God's word to me. And I can, I can hear that word in a community with people who love me, and that's deeply comforting. I don't have to be Elijah, and neither do you. We're not standing alone against the forces of evil, the forces of, of Baal and his prophets. We're standing together. There's, there's 7,000 of us. There's more of us than that. And, and we can speak God's love to each other. And I think that's what, 
that's what's easy to miss with idolatry. What Elijah seems to miss in some ways is that idolatry is sad. It's tragic because we become like the God that we worship. And in a way, because Elijah thinks that's what Yahweh is like, he becomes like Baal. He starts to use the tactics of the authoritarian God to defeat his enemies. It's sad to, it's sad to see the prophets of Baal hurting themselves to try to get their God to, to pay any attention to them. That's, there's something really deeply poignant about that, that even, you know, that's, that's what they think their God wants them to do. And in fact, that's exactly what their king is like. Because oftentimes, gods dictate what we justify in our politics as well. Um, Elijah doesn't see that. He just sees enemies to be defeated. But that is, that is deeply sad. The prophets of Baal, they are a threat in a way, but they're a threat because of who they think God is. And that's not who God is at all. And you don't change that by treating God in the same way. Our gods justify how we treat our neighbors, too. Again, the essence of how religion goes wrong, power and control. If anyone says to you, or when anyone says to you, God loves you, but uh, you had sex, or you swore, or you're gay, or you're transphobic, or you're racist, or you did something immoral or unethical, that's not God speaking. That's the spirit of control. That's Baal speaking, not Yahweh. God is, of course, sad when you hurt other people. And, of course, you know, human compassion is divinely precious. But because of who God wants us to be, who God wants us to become. And she wants you to be like her. Loving, forgiving, self-sacrificial, but also self-confident and secure and sure of your own worth. And that's what makes you able to have compassion. Anyone who wants to withhold God's love or even God's power because of something that we did, that's just another way of trying to control behavior because we're afraid. That's the action of a dictator and not the action of a God. This makes me think of someone else from scripture who wanted to call down fire from heaven. <laughs> uh, John, the apostle in the New Testament and his brother, uh, at some point, Jesus, it's kind of funny because Jesus wants to stay like stay the night in Samaria. So they go there, but then no one wants to, wants to give them a place to stay. This is, seems to be a theme in Jesus' life. That's what happens at his birth, too. But anyway, um, he's used to it. They're not. They're, they get really mad, and they ask Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven? Or do you, would you like to call down fire from heaven on Samaria? <laughs> and it just says Jesus rebukes them. Um, <laughs> good call, Jesus. But there's a reason why John gets called the son of thunder, at the beginning, which again, thunder, hmm, ball, sounds like, sounds like a storm deity. Um, and maybe in a Greek context, Zeus or Jupiter, that's, that's a pattern. That's how pagan deities use power because that's how humans use power. We project ourselves onto our gods. But John goes from the son of thunder to, in his, in his own gospel, calling himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. When I read that as a little kid, I was always like, Oh, really? Jesus didn't love the other ones? Good job, John. Uh, that's really humble of you. I don't think that's what he means at all. I think 
he doesn't name himself because his name is less significant to him than the fact that Jesus loved him. His identity is, I, Jesus loves me. I am the disciple who Jesus loves. And of course, God does love him. And in the end, God keeps Israel's side of the covenant as well as his own, because God enters into the covenant on both sides, first on God's own side and then on the human side. So I guess as I end today, I'd like to ask, do we find human compassion precious like God does? Do we want to see our enemies defeated or do we want to see them redeemed? That's one of the hardest things to do, especially for people who have really hurt us. And we're all on a journey, and I think the transformation has to come from outside of us. I think it has to come from us experiencing God's love. So I think, what if we start with ourselves? What if you thought of yourself in the way that John did, as Jesus' beloved, rather than your own name? What if you thought of yourself as Jesus' beloved when you did something embarrassing or stupid, or when you got angry with your friends or your spouse, or your kids, or your coworkers? What about when your best plans, like Elijah's plans to build God's kingdom, what about when they fail? God asks, why are you here? And God's beloved answers. So as we come to the table today, let's remember that we are all God's beloved, even our enemies, but especially ourselves. And let's live out of that love, knowing that even when we mess up, even when God allows us to do things that don't look, that don't look good on her or him, when we, um, when we don't treat our neighbors as we should, we are still God's beloved, and so are they.